Welcome to First Unitarian Society of Minneapolis, the birthplace of Congregational Humanism. We carry on that tradition of free thought today, dedicated to promoting a free search for truth, meaning, and justice. Our web address is firstunitarian.org. I'm David Breeden, Senior Minister. Welcome. It's a familiar story you you just heard in the fertile crescent of Mesopotamia, traditional hunting and gathering groups began to settle into agricultural communities. The gathered communities produced a multiplier effect and soon knowledge led to innovation, metallurgy, agricultural advances, architecture, writing, mathematics, and differentiation of labor until soon there were kings and priests, soldiers and artisans, farmers and slaves. An inevitable hierarchy. And with hierarchy, so the story goes, came inequality and human suffering. In the recently published book titled The Dawn of Everything, A New History of Humanity, David Graeber and David Wingrow take on this old narrative that uh, Europeans have long, long told about humanity, including such loaded words as civilization and progress. And they ask a very simple question, is it true? And the answer is not as simple as it at first appears. There are some glaring assumptions built into the traditional Euro-American narrative of human history. For example, one glaring assumption is that hunter-gatherers were not capable of political philosophy, that they simply fell from one social situation into another until the idea of agricultural cities just happened. A body of evidence has been gathering during this millennium that indicates the old narrative simply is not the case. It was an illusion and a damaging illusion. Another assumption is that the arrow goes only one way from hunter-gatherer societies into agricultural ones and ultimately and inevitably into industrial and post-industrial capitalism. Evidence does not bear this out. Some societies abandoned agriculture after they tried it. They didn't like it. Other societies used agriculture sometimes and hunting and gathering other times of the year. They went back and forth. Another assumption is that large gatherings of people had to be largely dependent on agriculture for food. This doesn't appear to be the case either. And there is the assumption that larger gatherings of human beings, what we call cities, must depend upon hierarchical social structures. The authors described Talyanke, Ukraine, not discovered until the 1970s, it was the largest Neolithic settlement in Europe, and it dates from 3800 BCE, the time of the settlements in Mesopotamia. Talianki was approximately 15,000 residents large. They had over 3,000 structures there, and it was built in concentric circles radiating out from a green space in the middle. Except, unlike the cities of Mesopotamia, Talianki shows no signs of a hierarchy and no signs of inequality. 
The so-called mounds builders here in the U.S. also appear to have done the same thing along the Mississippi River, especially at Cahokia and Poverty Point, Louisiana. Large cities, no agriculture, and no social hierarchy. So there are a lot of assumptions out there. Fact is, human beings know how to build sustainable community when we look outside of Euro-American assumptions and let go of the status quo. Now that's the central thesis of the dawn of everything. Given the clear creativity of human beings to create just and sustainable communities, why did we get stuck in our present social norms? Norms that degrade and minimize the lives of most human beings on our planet and is destroying the planet itself. Why do we think our present situation is inevitable? The theme for the month of November is holding the past. The title of my talk today is Movable Feasts and Usable Pasts. As I see it, that's how we hold the past. Like the false truisms of what so-called civilization is, history is not actually a thing. It's a process that never ends. A process centering social forces that find movable feasts along the way. A metaphor for how things change over time. And we also find these usable pasts, the bits of history that get cherry-picked to inform particular actions in particular times and places. There is no true history. There is merely what happened, and there's the way what happened gets interpreted by often politically motivated interpreters and subsequent generations down the way who are facing very different situations. Yet, it's not true that we can't find out some facts about the past. Now, allow me to read from the 2016 book, Slavery's Capitalism, A New History of American Economic Development, edited by the historians Sven Burkert and Seth Rockman, who went back to documents from the time period to look at what was really going on. Quote, 19th century Americans had little difficulty grasping slavery's capitalism. Advocates of national economic development presumed the reciprocal relationship of slaveholding and non-slaveholding states, as well as the mutual interests of the slaveholder manufacturer, and merchant. Quote, on the White Mountains of New Hampshire, we find the sugar of Louisiana, and in the plains beyond the Mississippi, the cotton cloths of Rhode Island are demonstrated. In uh, quote, explained the famed editor Hezekiah Niles in 1827. Abolitionists such as William Lloyd Garrison recognized the North as a, quote, partner in iniquity, end quote, and credited the great depression, economic depression of 1837, with delivering a deserved ruin to those New York City mercantile firms that engaged in commerce with the South. Continuing the quote, in turn, Southern nationalists lambasted Northern sanctimoniousness. Quote, many of the abolitionists of the present day affect to have such tender consciences to feel such abhorrence of slavery that they declare they will not wear the cotton of the South because it has been cultivated by slaves, end quote, observed the Baltimore minister Alexander McCain. Quote again, yet these extremely sensitive and preeminently holy characters 
feel no qualms of conscience to sell southern planters their boots and their shoes, their Negroes' cloth, and all the etc. that make up the cargo of Yankee notions and put the money arising from the labor of slaves in northern pockets. Indeed, to continue the quote, in 1845, manufacturing censuses found that nearly half of the woolen manufacturers in Rhode Island produced textiles for the plantation market. A South Carolina industrialist such as William Gregg might rightfully lament that such thriving northern cities as Bridgeport, Connecticut had, quote, been built by the capital from Charleston, end quote, while a compatriot writing in Debo's review would declare slavery, quote, the nursing mother of the prosperity of the North, end quote. Now, these facts are pretty clear. They went back to these original documents and they're quoting from them. The British Empire became the dominant force on the planet due to the riches generated by the Atlantic slave trade. The citizens of America, the colonists at the time, achieved the highest standard of living of any of the subjects in the British Empire, including Britons themselves, from the Atlantic slave trade. In 1775, Americans were the wealthiest people in the empire and paid the lowest taxes of any subjects in the empire. Now, remind yourself that one of the big excuses for our war was taxation. Again, Americans had the lowest taxes in the entire empire. After the war, however, Americans had a crippling tax burden due to war expenses. Many truisms of history are propaganda. Known facts can be spun a whole lot of different ways. And many things are movable feasts and usable pasts. Think about Nero, for instance. He was a really bad guy, right? There's no contemporary evidence that he was. It, the history has been written by the people who hated him and murdered him. And that's how he got to be a bad guy. Lots of instances of that sort of the winners writing history. But back to that book, The Dawn of Everything, A New History of Humanity. One of the most interesting claims in this book, and the one that will be probably the most controversial, I suspect, is their claim that the European Enlightenment itself is the product of French interaction with North American First Peoples. English speakers and Anglophiles are probably going to ask, now, how can that be? But that's because we look at history from an Anglo-American United States focus. The English invaded this hemisphere to extract resources, but also to occupy the land. So from a Euro-American viewpoint, the native peoples were in the way and needed to be driven back and or exterminated. The English and then the Americans didn't, and still don't do much listening to native peoples. The French came to this hemisphere to extract resources, not so much to settle. And so rather than an impediment, the French saw the first peoples as convenient pawns to use for extracting those resources. So they got to know the peoples and learned their languages in order to use them. The French front line in this strategy were Jesuit priests, some of the most highly educated Europeans of that day. 
Now, like Europeans and Americans then and now, the Jesuits were convinced that their religion and their social systems were the apex of human civilization. So, since they weren't planning on exterminating the natives, the French set out to convince the leaders of First Peoples to follow European ways in both religion and in social structures. The Jesuits planned to debate the natives into compliance and submission. The greatest native thinker from this time period is Kandiyarok, probably 1649 to 1701. He was a chief of the Windot people. They are mistakenly called Huron, as is the lake. Uh, that was a derogatory term for pig-haired. So if you don't want to criticize their haircuts, you call them Windot. Who has ever heard of Kandiyarok? Not many Americans, but there are lots of people who have because he's on a Canadian stamp. Kandiyarok was a master political strategist, and he saved his people by playing the French off against various native enemies of his tribe. But beyond the politics of the time, for the larger European history of thought, Kandiyarok is important because the French got to know him really well and he got to know lots of priests and lots of political leaders. Now, as I mentioned earlier, the French were always debating with him, trying to convince him that the European ways of life were better. Which, you must remember, uh, turn your mind back a, a little bit to what was going on in Europe of the 1600s. The French lived in an absolute monarchy at that time, and they were also dominated by the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, this is a little more than 100 years before the French Revolution. One of the sayings of Kandiyarank that has come down to us is addressed to a Frenchman, and it goes like this. Quote, in earnest, my dear brother, I am sorry for you from the bottom of my soul. Take my advice and turn windot, for I see plainly a vast difference between your condition and mine. I am master of my own body. I have the absolute disposal of myself. I do what I please, end quote. Now, uh, need I mention that Louis XIV uh, was not such a nice guy and his subjects were not like what uh, was being described there. The king and his bureaucracy were the absolute masters over French bodies at that time and only the king could do what he pleased. Now, despite or because of that empire expanding at the time, uh, Louis's government was perpetually broke and continually extracting more and more taxes. The feudal system in France had broken down and left farmers destitute and unable to feed themselves, let alone this huge bureaucratic apparatus that ruled over them. Kandiyarank said, in essence, I feel sorry for you. Your king is a tyrant. Your god is a tyrant. And the minions of your king and your god are parasites. You want us to be like you? Now, I'll read the quote again. In earnest, my dear brother, I am sorry for you from the bottom of my soul. Take my advice and turn windot. For I see plainly a vast difference between your condition and mine. I am master of my own body. I have absolute disposal of myself. I do what I please. End quote. Well, so what happened next? 
Books and pamphlets recording Candia Ronk's sayings often are they're in fictionalized form and in dialogues, but they became bestsellers in the France of the day. And in the dawn of everything, the authors assert that French intellectuals reading these sayings began to ask themselves some questions. Could it be that inequality is not inevitably the consequence of civilization? Good question. Might equality be possible in European society? Could it be that all human beings deserve freedom and opportunity? Could it be that all human beings have a right over their own bodies? Might it be, as Candia Ronk claimed, that money itself was the cause of inequality and human suffering? According to Candia Ronk, the indigenous Americans did not have money. They did not have hereditary monarchies, only chiefs to be listened to if their advice was convincing enough. They did not have an angry god or rapacious priests. They did not have private property to hoard or uh, to covet. They did not have police forces or standing armies. Yet, in America, everyone was equal. Everyone ate as well as everyone else. Everyone was cared for, no matter their condition. Individuals, even women and children, had personal worth, autonomy, and dignity. Why can't we do that here? French philosophers began to ask. What stands in our way? And they were able to dodge the law because that Indian guy said it. Could these discussions be the basis, the foundation, and seeds of enlightenment thought? I think that's a very good question they ask. Now, as I've often said, one of the great spiritual practices in multiple human religions and philosophies is that we must look through the illusion. An illusion is those things that's been heaped on us by social convention and social location, the prejudices and preconceptions that we're raised with, false valuations, love for and obsession for those illusory things Many philosophies and religions have said that's the human problem. We so easily and so often fall into group thinking. Folk history, nationalistic jingoism, presentism, in which we assume that all of humanity has been leading to us. Yay, we are the epitome of humanity. And also that assumption that everyone has always known what we know today. All of that is an illusion. It's a false and damaging way of assessing our reality. To conclude, when Alex Haley's book Roots, the story of an American family was first published, James Baldwin was asked to review the book for the New York Times. Now, Baldwin wrote this. Roots is the study of continuities, of consequences, of how a people perpetuate themselves, how each generation helps to doom or helps to liberate the coming one. Roots suggests with great power how each of us, however unconsciously, can't but be the vehicle of the history which has produced us. We, we all can perish in this vehicle, children, or we can move on up the road. End quote. We might wish that history had only one lesson, only one true way, only the true way that we know of interpreting it. 
only one way that's led to us in the way that we live today, which is obviously the best. But this is not how history works. Always it has been and always it will ever be a movable feast. Always later generations will pick among the ruins looking for a usable past. Guessing, interpreting, trying to figure out what it all means. But James Baldwin, I think, was a prophet, and we do well to listen to him. Uh, Listen again. Each of us, however unconsciously, can't but be the vehicle of the history which has produced us. Well, we can perish in this vehicle, children, or we can move on up the road. End quote. Now, that's our choice to perish in the vehicle built by history, if history means what really happened. Rather, this vehicle is built of illusions. It's built of false assumptions uh, that we only think is really history. We can perish here, or we can see through the illusions and move on up the road together. Thanks for listening. You can find much more about humanism and what's happening at First Unitarian Society in Minneapolis by visiting our website at firstunitarian.org.